Check, check, one, two. This is Paul Crusette, one half of the Story of Miami team. Uh, I am joined by the other half of the Story of Miami team uh, remotely, Nick McRae. Say hi, Nick. Hello. And uh, we're here today to bring you a special bonus episode of season two wrap-up. If you remember at the end of the first season, we did something similar where we got together and took the opportunity to talk to our listeners directly about uh, various things that we wanted to talk about story of Miami related, history of Miami related, um, and anything else really that came to mind. So we got some positive feedback on that, and we decided we'd keep the uh, tradition going and and give you guys another uh, sort of sneak peek into our brains here at the end of season two. Um, So without further ado, here is the season two wrap-up bonus episode. Um, And actually, I'd, I'd like to dive in by recognizing the elephant in the room. If you noticed, I said Nick was joining me remotely. I am at the uh, Story of Miami downtown studios, a.k.a. my apartment. Nick is joining us from his apartment, and um, that's not by choice. Our, our season one bonus episode was recorded here. We were together. Uh, face but, to face. Yeah, face to face. But as you know, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, and so that has made it um, difficult to, to you know, get together and, and within three feet of each other and, and, and spitting in our faces and whatnot. So we are... <laughs> doing this remotely. So this is a learning process for us. It's the first um, remote, you know, recording we've done. And um, how do you feel about it, Nick? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you started with that because that's sort of the first thing on my mind also is um, I, I think these bonus episodes are interesting because they are a glimpse into the time, the period of history that we're living in right now as we produce this show. And uh, this time that we're in right now um feels so historic and it feels like uh it it really feels like a turning point in history i don't know what way it's turning i don't know where it's going but um like right now is you know the most one of the most like interesting bizarre uh definitely stressful and challenging um times that I've lived in in my life, and um, I'm sure it's similar for you. Um, and you know, this this project uh, has given us um, a much greater appreciation of uh, of history, obviously. Um, and you know, looking back at like these monumental periods in history, um, this season we talked about like the Civil War, and um, you know, things that had just a major impact on the direction that this country and the world has gone. And this feels like a similar sort of time. The entire world is experiencing this pandemic together. This isn't just American history. This is world history. Um, But in the meantime, here in America, we are experiencing, you know, a lot of social upheaval, a lot of 
I think the consequences of some of the things that we covered, some of the past history that we've covered in this season. So to me, it's like very interesting to see the past and the present come together and to sort of like be living, be living history, which of course we are all the time, but um, it's just a lot more palpable right now, I feel like. So it's very interesting. We, we had to go through this whole complicated rigmarole just to get this recording set up. Uh, you, you have a, you have a baby on the way and um, you know, right. you're, you're doing your best to, you stay know, safe. stay safe during this crazy time. Uh, so, you know, we wanted to make sure we were, you know, taking all the precautions we could. Um, but, you know, it's not something I ever would have expected or foreseen to be living through um, in my lifetime. But now, having learned a little bit of history, I'm like, you know what? That's not that crazy. Well, <laughs> like, yeah, and, and that's what I was going to jump right into is, you know, what this moment can teach us about history or vice versa, what history can teach us about this moment. Um, you know, just you just kind of spoke on how this is a world um, issue. It's affecting everyone globally. It's affecting the whole country. But if we could just zoom into Miami, you know, I've noticed that Miami's been hit particularly hard in large part because of of the way it operates and what it is and, you know, the nature of its um, uh, tourist economy. We're so dependent on, you know, the service industry. And, and that's one of the first things to go and one of the last things to come back. And you see a lot of Miamians today uh, struggling because so many people from here depend on other people coming here um, mm-hmm. as, as part of our economy. And, and, and there's, there's definitely more to it. There's definitely other parts of, of our economy that have, that have been shut down. But it, it brings me back to this idea that Nick and, ha- Nick and I have um, sort of started developing as we've, we've gone through you know, the first two seasons and, and doing our research. And it's this idea of stairs versus visitors, where you know, Miami, for much of its, uh, certainly its modern history, like from its you know, official founding in the late 1880s to, through today, can be defined as sort of having... Um, 18, uh, 1890s, eight, late 1890s. Sorry. What did I say? 1880s. 1880s? Well, <laughs> yes, 1890s. 1896 is when we were founded, just for clarification okay. purposes. But um, beginning in the, in the 1880s, we started seeing really the right. first communities start, um, right. uh, first big communities start forming in Coconut Grove and Lemon Coconut City, um, even around the Miami River uh, with the Brickles. And, and those were, for all intents and purposes, our first sort of stairs, right? Um, and, and then you, you fast forward 15 or 20 years, and, and Flagler comes to town, and, and he brings the real first rush of what we would like to call the visitors, right? The people who only come here um, when the sun is shining and the weather's nice, and, and they come here and they party and they leave. And for so much of our history from that moment on, I think Miami in large part can be defined by those two demographics, the people who live here and make it it's, it's home, their home, and the people who just, you know, are coming here for fun or coming here to buy a condo and, and you know, store some cash in, in the Miami real estate market and leave. Right. And, you know, I, I think, and I think Nick does as well, that that dynamic has been the cause of a lot of what makes Miami great, but also a lot of its problems, a lot of its issues, because I think Miami struggles with trying to figure out 
who are we trying to cater to and who are we trying to take care of? The stayers or the visitors, right? I mean, wouldn't you agree, Nick? Yeah. Um, I, I spoke in our first bonus episode at the end of season one, I spoke a little bit about um, the feeling of um, like just sort of like disconnectedness in Miami that um, I know I'm not, is not unique to me. So, so some other listeners might be able to relate to that. One of the things, well, and I also spoke about how that, that feeling was part of what was my motivation to dig into the history and figure out where all of this came from. One of the things that I think was most eye-opening for me from that experience, and again, this is coming from like knowing none of Miami history at that time, so now it seems like obvious, but at the time it was like really eye-opening to learn that Miami has been a resort town for wealthy tourists since day one. Um, And this is like baked deeply into Miami's DNA from the beginning. Um, you know, even before Flagler, we, we, we talked in this season about Coconut Grove and how kind of Coconut Grove was really the, the birth of Miami's tourism industry um, at the Peacock Inn. And um, to me, that's just been that it like it has made so much of Miami made make more sense to realize that it's been this way. It didn't like get the, I thought like, Oh, like maybe it became this way in the eighties or something, but like, that's not it at all. It's, this is what it's been from the beginning. This is what Flagler had in mind when, when he paid a ton of money to build this place, um, or to, you know, build the first version of this place. Um, yeah. And, and that's been the story ever since of like you're saying of, you know, there being this group of sort of like the population of Miami that is only here for part of the year and they're only here for uh, sort of a particular purpose, which is to party and have fun. Um, and then there's kind of like, I don't want to say like the rest of us, but like the, the, then there's the, those of us that like are here year round. Yeah, I think it's safe to say we're more invested in this community um and not to say that we're not also partying in miami it's just that when the others get to go back to their their homes we're we're left to clean up the proverbial mess so to speak so right right well on on that note actually um going back to the whole coronavirus thing i think that's part of what's difficult about this for miami is because we love to party and like that's the first thing that had to go right which uh, I feel I feel your pain, Miami. We're we're all stuck at home. I want I want to go out and like I just want to go out and like have a drink, but can't. No, nope, no, nope. it's, it's it's just not too dangerous. Respo- I mean, it's too dangerous. It's not no, not responsible. <laughs> Guys, please wear your masks when you go outside. <laughs> PSA: Stay at home. Story yeah. of Miami PSA: If you take nothing else away yeah. from today, please wear your mask. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, and and just to circle back um, uh, on that thought. I, I think it is vitally important for us to, to make that same sort of realization. I say us, I'm, I'm speaking about the whole community that, that Nick, you just spoke to, because understanding that dynamic that's been at play since our founding, um, 
you know, it's made me even take a step back and say, okay, so who are these measures that, you know, the government is trying to put in place, really trying to benefit? What's our local community doing uh, to benefit, you know, the local Miamians as opposed to make it easier for for others to, to, to come here and, and enjoy the city, which is important too. It, it feeds our economy. Um, but we need, you know, as Miami matures, um, it, it, Miami needs to, I, I think, look within itself and, and, and try to really figure out, okay, how can we be more than just what we are right now? Right. Um, you know, right. And, and you and I have talked a bunch about, you know, the sort of things we think um, Miami could use, you know, better education, uh, better opportunities. I mean, we, we, we need to... A more diverse to, economy. A more diverse economy, which kind of feeds all that, you know. Right. I, I know anecdotally, um, so, so many of my friends get get educated here and then have to leave uh, because there's just no opportunity here for, um, right. uh, for you know, engineers or, 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 or neuroscientists or um, at right. least not as much opportunity as there should be. So right. that's just kind of my, um, you know, well, my two cents on and that. Yeah, like, you know, some of the stuff that I talked about in the, in the, in the previous bonus episode Part of it for me has been a sense of, like you're saying, like wanting, wanting more for Miami, and going back and learning the history has helped me understand why it's, why why that's difficult, um, and it's because this is what Miami is at its foundation is a resort town. This is like, at this is at the heart of like you know, the, the Miami, what Miami's identity and, and what Miami does. So that makes it a lot easier for me to understand why it's difficult for Miami to sort of like diversify its economy and, and so on and so forth, because you, you have generations of promoters and developers and speculators and party throwers. I'm sure there's like a proper job title for party <laughs> thrower, but, but I, I don't know what it is. And so for me, yeah, like I'm a, I'm a software engineer, uh, being a software engineer in Miami is tough, is super tough. And, um, like I, I, I look at, you know, other parts of the country, other parts of the world where as an engineer, I know like that's where like all the jobs are. That's where, all, you know, there's like a, an incredible, you know, ecosystem of, you know, technologists and academic institutes and so on and so forth. And, and I, and it's been a little bit frustrating in Miami, um, that, you know, I, I, I come from a place where like, we don't have those resources and trying to understand like, why not? Um, like we discussed in the, previously you know there's a lot of reasons for that Miami's also just a very young city like we talked about before it takes time to develop these things and um I think we're on the right track but like part of it is like Miami's inertia is centered on tourism like that's like that's where the center of gravity of Miami is and what I think I'd love to see and I think others, some others in the community would love to see is not, I'm worried that like we're coming off as like, oh, all that stuff is bad. And like, you know, we don't like it. And we wish that wasn't part of it, which is not the case at all. Like I, I want to build on top. I want to build on that. I want Miami to be like a world destination for people who want to party and have fun and like enjoy like our 
beautiful beaches and our um, our sunsets, which have been stunning recent lately. Um, thank you, Saharan dust. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Sahara <laughs> desert. Um, but you know, but to also be able to come and like you know find find a just a more diversity of opportunities, um, and uh, and like a more dynamic synergistic sort of uh sort of economy um yeah and it's i mean even just on that point to piggyback on it if you've made your way throughout you know through all of season two um we probably made it painstakingly obvious that miami really was only able to take off when industrialists sort of put together all of their resources and cutting edge technology and you know cut their way down here on a, on a, on a train, which at that point was cutting edge technology. And it was, right. you know, the wealth that was amassed with, with the industrial revolution that helped Miami really come into existence. And, and we've always asked ourselves looking at Miami's future, it seems like we're going to need some similar type of process to be able to persevere through some of the challenges that we've got coming up on the horizon. Um, right. You know, I just, and, and of course, I'm, I'm talking about climate change and, and the effects it has. Um, you know, I, I haven't made my way through it. It's a huge document, but I recently saw that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has released, you know, a multi-billion-dollar plan on climate uh, the mitigation efforts for Miami, which is the most comprehensive one I've seen. And you know, they're planning all sorts of things, building walls and, and pumps and raising homes. And I mean, it's going to start to get more real that that this is a challenge that's going to affect all of our lives pretty substantially. Right. And if we don't come together as a community and, and really make it our priority to do something about it and also have a sense that we can do something about it, you know, right. we're kind of in, in, in deep trouble if, if we don't do okay. that. Um, right. And I think we, again, you know, this is a history podcast, so <laughs> mind us for always trying to reorient it towards that. But if we look to our past and we see that, We've done this in the past, and, and it, it provides some motivation. I know for me it does. I'm like, look, we've done it before. We can do it again. You know, those, those early communities of South Florida were, were a hardy bunch, and, and they did what they had to do to survive, and there was no telling them that Miami was just, you know, a distant backwater with, with no chance of, of a good life. They made it. They made a great life for themselves because they believed in it, because they came together as a community, and I think we can do the same thing. I mean, it's just right. going to take... It's going to take a massive effort in sort of evoking that uh, within the people. Yeah. Well, one of the things that um, that I find sort of fascinating about this whole sort of like Miami technology theme, which we uh, sort of drove pretty hard in the in the last episode, um, is that Miami, like Miami, is a technological marvel, um, it, at least. You know when it was when it was founded that's what it was um it was miami is a product of technology but it has never been a source of technology it's never been like the place where the innovation um and like these these new ideas and the engineering that's required to like figure out how to do it properly happens that all happens elsewhere and gets perfected elsewhere and then it's almost like when it's ready, we buy it 
and use it here and we put it into practice here. So to me, that's like a very interesting sort of dichotomy because Miami is like a high tech, you know, machine, um, you know, you know, to varying degrees throughout its history, but, you know, particularly, uh, you know, in Flagler's time and what I think, yeah, what like what I would like as an engineer, as a software engineer, like what I would love to see is for it to become the place where this stuff is developed in the first place. And you know, as I've gotten older, I've started to see problems as opportunities, just like, you know, it's like a philosophical outlook. And I think that that's kind of how I think about climate change these days. Um, this is something that every it's just, it's more and more inevitable every day that this is happening, like we're not doing what we need to do to stop it. And Miami is going to be one of the first cities in the world to face these problems with climate change, but we're not going to be the only ones. And cities all over the planet are going to need solutions to this problem. And for me, I see that as an opportunity for Miami to pick up the mantle and lead on developing these solutions. I feel like that could be very, very interesting for Miami to sort of, you know, sort of become the, the world leader in climate change solutions and to develop, um, you know, to develop a, an industry around that, that for sure would attract, you know, innovators from all over the world, which I just think would be like the, you know, the more the merrier. I think, you know, all of that would just add to the richness of Miami and the experience of living here. So that's, I mean, I'm nerding out a little bit. That's, this is, you know, this is something, you know, Paul, that this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, but it's like, I'm kind of like excited to share it with our listeners a little bit. You know, we, we actually are in a position to innovate here. And I don't know, I just, I would really love to see that for the future. Definitely. I, I think we've got the institutions, we've got the manpower, we've got the talent. We just, we need to take more initiative um, to, to try and get that going down here. So yeah. with that, do you want to talk a little bit about our behind the scenes, behind the curtain Wizard of Oz moment where we give our listeners a little, um, our thoughts on, on our production this year and how it differed? Because this is something that personally, it, it's very interesting as somebody who never did a podcast before and you are somebody who never did a podcast before as well. Just the difference between season one and season two and how much we've learned and how much uh, we've sort of grown and, and how our approach has changed both to, you know, the technical aspects, the, the research aspects, the writing, um, and even getting into what we are deciding to talk about. Cause that, became much more of an issue this season than the first season. Right. You know, there's, there's going back to the first season, we covered, I mean, so much history um, and there, and there, and so much of it had no direct, didn't directly occur in Miami that we could sort of pick and choose, okay, which are the important moments that, that, that we want to talk about that, that helped kind of push the Miami story along. When we get to this season, that whole process becomes a little more complicated. Uh, because there's more sort of water from the well that we can draw from. And we have to take a step back and, and, and really ask ourselves what's important, what's necessary. And, you know, what are we 
where are our blinders? What are we not realizing that is an important aspect of the story that, that we're not actively telling? Yeah, well, I think one of our goals from the beginning of this project has been to put Miami into context. I think we had a joke early on of like hashtag no context. Right. <laughs> just being like a slogan for Miami. Right. And, and that was a part of like my personal feeling of disconnectedness and stuff. I'm, I was just like, how, how does this place fit in with the rest of the world? I don't see the connection. Um, I think we even had a passage in one of our first season episodes about how like it seems like Miami was like written by like a, it was like added to the history books after the fact or something like that. Right. Like, um, but obviously that's not the case. It was, it's been here all along when all this other, you know, crazy world events that everybody knows about have been going on. So we've been trying to give context to Miami and what that means is sort of like telling the history of things that were going on around Miami, outside of Miami. Um, but once you start doing that, that gets very tricky. That yeah, gets very it's complicated. It's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> and we tried very, very hard this season to keep the right balance. Um, uh, and it, it's tricky. You know, everything is connected. So, like, as soon as you start, you know, trying to give context to, you know, the Civil War, then very easily you end up talking about, like, all this other stuff um, to give to give context to the Civil War, just so you can give context to Miami during the Civil War, and so on and so forth. So one of the things that we found, we experienced in the first season was that we would, like, write an episode and even, like, record it, and then we would go start learning about the history for the next episode and realize, like, oh, there's some context for this that we haven't set up yet, and it's better to set that up in the previous episode that we just finished so let's go do that over again. And that happened a few times yep. in the first season. It was, it was very, not fun. <laughs> it was not fun. It was very inefficient. So one of the things we decided to do this time is actually learn the whole history of this season before... before Who would have thought episodes. that that would have been a good idea? Who would have thought? But um, that ended up working out amazingly well, of course. Um, but what that meant was like we could start to you know developing whole story arcs whole themes um that span multiple episodes i'm personally very happy with how the last three episodes of this season um came together it's sort of like a whole this whole story arc about flagler and the tuttles and the railroads and the industrial revolution and how all of that led to miami coming into existence but besides that, that process was much more efficient. We sort of have developed a, a much better sort of like pipeline for a season that starts with research, detailed notes about the research, but no like writing until the research is done or the bulk of the research is done. And then a phase of like writing out episodes. And during that process, like which episodes, like what the episodes are actually going to be becomes a lot more clear. Um, instead of trying to pin down, you know, the episode list in the beginning, you sort of like allow that to reveal itself as the process goes on. So I think we had an idea that this season would be a short six episode season when we started, but it turned out making more sense 
as nine episodes. And that was only sort of like made apparent during the writing process. And then once you have like rough drafts written, then you go and you polish everything up. And it's sort of like not until that process is mostly done that it's safe to start recording. Because again, like what you don't want to do is have to like do the same thing over again. So, you know, that that's something we learned the hard way from the first from the first season and uh it worked out great this season and we'll be able to do it even better for the rest of the projects um i feel like we've got this we've got this process like very refined at this point but like there's obvious things we can do you know even even better now and what's also cool is like as you level up you sort of like gain access to the next level and like now there's even more stuff we can do so during this season we i think started making a better commitment to sort of like the professionalism a little bit of like of this field of like this field of history we're trying to do a better job these days of you know citing our sources crediting our sources and stuff like that which is just I think uh, part of being like a good histor- history citizen um, and so on and so forth. And, and, and those are things. Well, just to add to that specific point, you know, I, I think we, we streamlined the production process much more this season. That became a lot easier. To me, what became harder has to do with what you just hit on, which is the process of of writing history, um, you know, by by its very definition, you are you're sort of telling the story you think is important, and when you take that seriously, I think it it, it produces a, a a fairer story. But it's very to, challenging. It's very challenging, and we hit you know several points in this season where we had to ask ourselves: Is this worth telling? Should we not tell this? This aspect of the story, um, I'll just give one example. During our episode where we talked about Manifest Destiny, one of our listeners uh, reached out, and, and which we encourage you know, all of our listeners to do. He loved the podcast, but he was just curious why we chose not to mention or not to highlight the, um, the adverse effects of Manifest Destiny on um, Native Americans particularly those out west that were just pushed out of the way as, as the line of, of U.S. settlement moved west. And, and it's one of those things that, you know, perhaps if given a second chance, we might mention a little bit more about that. We did mention a little bit about that. But it's, it's one of those challenges of, you know, how many of those routes are you going to go down um, and delve into? Because the one thing we don't want to do is just mention something for the sake of mentioning it you know, if we're going to tell a story, we, we want to tell that whole story. And so yeah. we, we're kind of guided by this principle of what's important to understanding Miami's history and what pushes the Miami story forward. And hopefully what comes across is that in as much as something is important to the Miami story, we do delve into it. So, you know, the story of the Seminoles, I think, is is one that we started telling back in season one in how... The, the Native Americans of the United States East Coast right. were pushed and down, and, and we told their story um, and how the Seminole tribe was created out of that 
conflict out of out of those pressures um, that right. that those um, yeah that those Native Americans were, were were facing due to colonialism and 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 expansion and all that. And we followed you know the seminal story I think a little more closely than than any other Native American story. Not to mention you know Which, the Tequesta and Calusa that we kind of talked about um, in season one. But that being said, you know we 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 are trying to make sure that we don't miss out the sort of more marginalized stories in history because they're marginalized for a reason is that nobody talks about them. And the one thing we want to do, I think is just make sure that we're talking about all of the relevant, important stories, um, that are, that, that bring out so many more of the voices of, of history. Right. And, and yeah, like this, the struggle I think is to identify and mitigate our own biases, but also the biases of the historians that we're building on top of. So there's a, there's a variety of things that go on. First of all, like the people who get pushed aside don't get to write the history, you know, and in America, like it's, you know, so much of the history of the last, uh, you know, two centuries and in Florida, so much of the history of the last two centuries has just been dominated by white people. And, you know, white people have written most of the history. Um, some have done a really good job of, like, going out into the field and, like, getting the perspective of, for example, the Seminoles that were living at the time and trying to relay that. But um, it's never going to be the same as hearing it from, like, a Seminole themselves and like i don't actually know any seminoles um what i'm getting at is that like we want to be as inclusive as possible of everybody's experience um but yeah and and i mean this stuff is so yeah so tricky and 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 to your point i think what 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 i mean correct me if i'm wrong but one of the things you're trying to get at is that you want to go to the source and, and get those stories and to the extent that we can, you know, we're not the source, right? Neither of us are seminals. But hopefully what we did was kind of pique people's interest. Uh, because I, for one, didn't right. know, you know, 90% of what, we, of what we included in our podcast before doing this stuff. Yeah, and, and that and, stuff blows my mind. And, right. And so I think if anyone can listen to that and then it, it, it sort of piques their interest and they go off and they do their own, their own research and, and go visit, you know, the seminal... Uh, uh, Mikasuki tribes, uh, which you can do to this very day, and and mm-hmm. I think that's you know part and parcel of the larger uh, goal of this podcast is just to again we're not telling like literally the entire history of Miami. We're we're kind of giving the highlights uh, and hoping that people take that and run with it and, and do their own sort of you know further research, further reading, and get uh, like a richer a richer context for for what's going on here, what happened here, and. Right. There's so many just while, mind-blowing while, stories. While, while we're on this point, because um, I did specifically make a note of this, um, just so that our listeners can have some resources if this is something they're interested in, uh, the Seminole Tribe of Florida, um, their website is semtribe.com. That's S-E-M-T-R-I-B-E.com. Um, the Seminole Tribe also has their very own newspaper called the Seminole Tribune, 
which you can read online at seminaltribune.org. You find out, you know, what, you know, what is what's going on in the Seminole community. Likewise, the Miccosukee Tribe of Florida um, has a website at tribe.miccosukee.com. Uh, Miccosukee is M-I-C-C-O-S-U-K-E-E, uh, tribe.miccosukee.com. And, of course, you can actually go out there. These folks occupied the place that we live in before we came here, and they're still part of this community. Like, this is something that I, uh, I, I almost feel like shouldn't have to be, be said but I know from my experience growing up that it was just like, oh, you know, you can go out in the Everglades and like, oh, there's like Indians out there. Um, but, you know, this is part of our history and they've been part of this community since day one, since before day one. So, um, you know, I encourage everybody to, to go engage with, you know, with, the, with all the different groups, the different members of this community and learn about it. And kind of another, I'll, I'll kind of pivot a little bit um, to another aspect of season two that I think both Nick and I, you know, when, when we, we would go back and forth on a lot, um, which is this, you know, this question of, of how relevant slavery and the Civil War was mm-hmm. to Miami and South Florida. So if you've listened to to our, you know, to season one and season two, you know that there was indeed slavery in Miami. Uh, Fitzpatrick mm-hmm. famously brought down uh, slaves from from South Carolina um, and and tried to create a plantation and modeled slave plantation. a slave mm-hmm. plantation. So, and he did. He opened. There was a slave plantation uh, right around where the Central Business District is right now. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking, you know, a few slaves. By some accounts, he had like around 100 slaves or so. Um, So this was a pretty big operation. And he wasn't the only slave owner. He was probably the most prominent and maybe one of the largest, but William English after him had slaves as well. So it's not like it didn't touch Miami. That being said, Miami was so remote. It was so out of the way, hard to get to. um, And it wasn't as easy to grow crops here as it was elsewhere in the South. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, you you really didn't see the huge explosion of slavery the way you did elsewhere in the South. And so it, it, it didn't play as large as a role as, as it played elsewhere in the South. And so for that reason, we, I think, Nick, and you can speak to this, but we struggled a little bit with trying to figure out how do we put that story in context and yeah. how do we, you know, relate it to Miami? Yeah, this, for me, was the hardest, the hardest part of this entire season was... Um, you know, figuring out how to approach slavery and the Civil War. So we actually ended up writing an entire episode just about slavery and sort of going back to what you were saying about, like, you know, having to make that decision about what is appropriate to tell and what isn't. The history of slavery in the Americas is... Stuff that I, like, learned growing up and have sort of always been aware of, but sort of going back and, like, learning it all over again, all at once, was, like, kind of mind-blowing to me. Definitely, like, an emotional experience, and, you know, I felt, I think we both sort of felt, like, 
sort of like compelled to tell this story, you know, make sure like everybody like knows this story um, about like how about what happened and like, you know, how how it got this way. You know, what led to like the U.S. being so dependent on slavery and, um, you know, the, the divisions that emerged um, in the U.S. that led to the Civil War and so on and so forth. But also the brutality and just how crazy, like, uh, well, the, yeah, and to family, that point, family friendly, family friendly language on this podcast, but like how messed up it was, how right. like super messed up it was. So we ended up writing an entire episode about that. And then we were like, look, this episode has like one or two paragraphs that actually talk about Miami and the rest is just the history of slavery. We ended up sort of distilling that entire thing down into one or two paragraphs in the beginning of the Civil War episode. And I'm still like a little, I, I still feel like it was imperfect, but yeah, that's, you know, that's part of the, that's part of the, the struggle because the other thing, yeah, go ahead. Go no, ahead. Well, I have just, so much. I, I have so much to say. Right, right. I mean, we we've yeah, we spent a good deal, you know, talking about this issue while we were producing the episode. But you know, I personally, I felt it was important to give that that sort of vivid account, at least as vivid as we gave, you know, as as much as possible in in the time that we spent on it, because the fact of the matter is that, you know, enslaved people lived, worked, and died um, here in Miami. Right, there was a plantation mm-hmm. here for years where enslaved well, the people. Oldest, the oldest building in Dade County was built as slave quarters. As a slave quarters, right? Um, and and, where and English put all the slaves. Right. Yeah. So I think it's easy to kind of overlook that when you look at Miami, just because slavery didn't physically touch the location the way it does in many other places. Like you go throughout the South and you see these plantations that are still up. And you even go other places up north and you have like monuments to uh, slave riots or, uh, you know, what have you. But down here, you don't really have that as much. However, it still affects Miami to this day. And so it's important, A, to get again, to, to lend a voice, you know, to the extent we can to those people who were enslaved here in Miami. But then also to start setting up this this foundation for many of the racial issues that we're going to see crop up in Miami in future seasons. Because, you know, slavery led to the Civil War, led to Reconstruction, led to Jim Crow, and all of that played a role in Miami. And Jim Crow specifically Mm. played a huge role in Miami. We just talked in the last episode about how the very men who were building the city, who were building Flagler's Hotel, and were, were, were creating this this new... American Riviera out of the down, wilderness, right? Chopping, chopping down, doing all the hard ridiculously work. Ridiculously difficult trees down, yeah. And they were relegated to the other side of the tracks. Like that's the reality of it. They were literally told go to the other side of the tracks. And that's you see there the beginnings of like Jim Crow Miami. So, right. I, you know, we made this which dis- is which is which is very much a thing. So we we had. We had a little passage about how sort of like the dichotomy between South Florida and the rest of Florida and the South. Um, we had a little passage about that, I think, in the Civil War episode. And while uh, that part is true, and I think we were we were true to the history with that, basically we talked about how like the Seminole Wars 
had sort of like buffeted back Southern culture from like, you, you know, from reaching this far down the peninsula. I, I think that is like a true representation of, you know, sort of like Miami's heritage as being more separated from Southern plantation, deep South culture in the 1800s. But what at the same time is also sort of became apparent during this season is that Florida, all of Florida is the South during this period. And like my, Miami was a little more insulated and like a little more independent culturally, but especially after the Seminole Wars sort of um, wound down, you start getting Southern culture, you know, making its way down here. And a lot of these guys that came down to build Flagler's town were from North Florida. You know, these were Southern folks. And what we're going to be seeing, what we're already starting to see, you know, by where we are now, what we're going to be seeing in next season, I think, is that Miami is a Southern town in the beginning of its history. Like in a, not in a stereotypical way, because you also have this like crazy influence of Northerners. But like, it's almost like those are the visitors. The visitors are the Northerners. And a lot of the stayers early on are, you know, folks from North Florida, refugees from the Great Freeze and stuff like that. And I don't, I don't just want to like, like demean like the South. Um, it was all complicated stuff, but, um, one of the things that has become so sort of like glaringly obvious to me as we're getting into this period of history is just like how white and like how racist so much of what's, what happens in Miami's early history is and just how that's exactly what you would expect from the history that came before. And that's like exactly what was going on in a lot of the rest of the country and um i don't know it's just we try very hard to like be inclusive in how we tell the story and it's almost like like i don't i don't want the history that we tell next to to be like defined by like jim crow and stuff so much and uh, or, or for that to be such a prominent part of it but um but it totally is and uh i don't know i don't know what i'm well, yeah, I mean, you can't, you, that, you can't get away from the history. And I think, I think what, what, what we realized is, um, as, as we're doing this research, is that even if Miami wasn't a big slave town in that there wasn't that much slavery present here uh, for much of its history, that a lot of that still affected the development of race relations in Miami later on in its history. Mm -hmm. And... and <laughs> This is one of the wonderful things about Miami is, is how fast it changes. And sometimes, you know, for the worse, sometimes for the better. Um, you know, you look at around Miami today and it's like one of the most racially diverse places in the country. Um, you've got people from everywhere here. And I think we take it for granted that we just assume, you know, this is it's always sort of been this way. But it's become obvious that that it was that it wasn't always this way. And that right. we have we have some, you know, there's a dark side of Miami's history of race relations, and I think it's totally um, appropriate to to tell that story. I mean, not only is it appropriate, I think it's in, incumbent upon us to tell that story. 
Yeah, I think that's what I was getting at. Because, like, obviously, like, our, 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 I mean, we haven't explicitly mentioned this yet, but, like, our number one, like, you know, like, North Star for this episode is to tell what happened. Like, just tell what happened. When we're like, oh, like, should we tell this or not? Like, is it what happened? Then, um, then tell it. And, like, obviously, this is what happened. So that's the story. That's the story we're going to tell. But like you were saying, like, I think since the period that we grew up in has been so diverse, you know, I grew up with Hispanic friends. I grew up with black friends. You know, I've sort of always sort of taken it for granted that, like, Miamians are, you know, very open-minded, which, first of all, is... Not necessarily true. Not, mean, ne- not necessarily true today. It, it, I, <laughs> our race relations is like a very complicated issue down here, and I think it's right. I think it's not that it's any less mired by racism than anywhere else in the country. It's just I, I think there's like multiple layers to it. There's layers present here that aren't present in other countries because we're so right. influenced by how Latin America sees and reacts to to, to race. And nationality right. and, and, and national origin. You know, so like the black history and Hispanic history of Miami is is a very complicated thing that we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna find ourselves in this same position time and time again as we go through the story. And I think we're trying to, I guess, right. set ourselves and our listeners up for this very complicated, hard, difficult process of trying to sift through all of that and make some sense of it and make sure that we tell that story because I think it it is important to, to know it and, and to learn from it. Right. Well, and actually, here's this is one of the reasons I felt like it was sort of worthwhile to discuss this stuff on this episode is because at the same time, when we're telling the story, you know, in, in, you know, in the upcoming seasons, this is just part of the story. This isn't something that, like, you know, is, like, going to be the main theme of the story we tell the main theme of the story is about like how Miami was built and who built it and what their backgrounds were and like you know how it all came together and stuff and what's going to be happening is that like there's going to be a bunch of white people coming down here building everything and um I don't think that we're gonna be going out of our way to sort of linger on what their particular outlooks were about race and so on and so forth. You know, and, and in, in a lot of ways, I think we're, I mean, I don't know, maybe we'll talk about, maybe we'll talk about this as we produce the episode, but in a lot of ways, you know, we, we, we're just trying to celebrate everybody who like came before and like helped build this place. And um, when we're doing that, we don't want to make it sound like, uh, like we're I guess like we're not aware that some of these people had views that at least between Paul and I like we don't share um and we think are pretty ridiculous it's almost like now is a good time to sort of like talk about this stuff because it's not as appropriate to talk about it in this way or in this depth like during like a regular episode to me, that's one of the reasons I, you know, I felt like uh, now was this was a good topic for this episode. Yeah, and as you can see, it's a very complicated topic to. to I struggle to, with this. To, I to feel like through. it's so obvious. 
I feel like so obvious to listeners. <laughs> no, I mean, and I think to Nick to the last point you made, look, we're, this is the story of Miami, and and it, you know we're we're gonna tell the history of Miami, and the history of Miami really doesn't have any one central theme or central point or anything. So when we talk right. about race relations in Miami, right. it's gonna be a facet of the story we tell. I think one of the things we're gonna try to do is make sure that we're highlighting the contributions that all types of minorities made in the development in Miami, stories that. Right. throughout its history may have been more marginalized right so we that's one of the things i mentioned earlier is keeping our our um keeping a sense of of us having blinders and making sure that we're getting um we're getting at important individuals that may have been kind of brushed to the side because they were black or hispanic or or, or you know not white but i think to that point those stories are going to just be told as Miami stories, because that's what they are. They're just Miami, right. you know, right. it's part of the story of Miami. We're going to talk about the development of black communities and and many prominent black leaders and the development of Hispanic communities and prominent Hispanic leaders. So, and, and I mean, in South Florida, it's inevitable you're going to get at that just because looking around, you see uh, what a diverse place this is. So with that, um, I... Th- I, I <laughs> I think we should talk a little bit about a relevant topic, which is what we choose not... I'm sorry if you can hear that. Again, I'm recording in the downtown Miami studios. So you you will periodically hear cars, unnecessarily loud cars drive by, but... um, Right here, the Metro Rail, go by online. Right, right. So, um, and it's actually July 4th, so you might hear some fireworks too. Oh Um, yeah, today is July 4th. (laughs) I forgot to mention that. America's birthday. Happy 4th of July. (laughs) Very, um, very interesting July 4th. Yes, the, yes. Um, crazier July 4th. So, yeah, I, I figured we might talk a little bit about what didn't make it into season two. Um, as we've already discussed yes. a little bit here, there, there are times that we go through episodes and we write out a whole episode and then use two paragraphs of it. Um, we're trying right. to limit that as much as possible for obvious reasons, but new, inevitably things... New segment. Yeah, inevitably things will end up on the cutting room floor. So, Nick, you want to... Cutting room floor. <laughs> if we're going to do like a segment intro sound effect, this is where it's going to go. Otherwise, it'll just be my Nick, voice going... <laughs> cutting room floor. Nick's trying to do the Miami well, Club train horn that plays yeah. every 15 minutes. Was that not obvious? <laughs> no, it wasn't obvious. It's I, I know okay. you well, so I know what you're trying to do, but our listeners are probably very okay. confused. Um, do they know what the train horn is? All right. Never mind. Point is, this is a new segment called The Cutting Room Floor. Um, and there's just a handful of, like, yeah, like, interesting parts of the story that we really wanted to put in, but we found we couldn't put them in without sort of, like, uh, doing some damage to the flow of the episodes so without further ado let's go through some of these and these are sort of going to go in chronological order abner doubleday uh for many many decades abner doubleday was considered to be the founder of the game of baseball um i think in more recent years that claim has been uh called into question he never actually claimed that himself but abner doubleday was stationed at Fort Dallas during the Third Seminole War. And um, among the improvements that were made to Fort Dallas, uh, you may recall, listener, that 
as the Third Seminole War was ramping up, Fort Dallas saw its sort of most substantial buildup and, you know, the, the stone buildings were finished and a bunch of additional buildings were built and Fort Dallas was turned into a proper sort of military complex. One of the things that happened during that time that we didn't mention is that the first road north was built. It connected to somewhere, it connected to Fort Jupiter, I believe. Abner Doubleday, the possibly founder of baseball, was in charge of surveying and getting that project completed. And that was, that was the f- sort of like the first iteration of a northern overland route into the very hard-to-reach Miami area. The, the very same Abner Doubleday f- fired the first return shots at Fort Sumter. That's right. Um, so, like, this is, like, an interesting guy. He's, like, had, like, a little, some interesting places in American history um, outside of Miami, but he was right here um, and, you know, was part of the buildup of Fort Dallas and is to the north. Um, that road sort of thrown over, like it sort of disappeared in the years that followed because um, there were so few people here after the wars, after the Seminole Wars. Cool. Next is, uh, this was just an amazing quote from George McKay, who you may recall is, was the, uh, the land surveyor that came down here to, uh, to survey for the public land survey system um, so that parcels could actually be sold to homesteaders um, in the mid-1800s. I was actually able to find an amazing resource called Labins, L-A-B-I-N-S, which is uh, something that the Florida government, the Land Boundary Information System, Labins.org, has the original plats, all of the plats he drew, as well as all of his notes, that he wrote and what he would do is he would do one mile uh he would like map out one mile of like the edge of a square and he would write notes about everything he encountered along the way and he has this really funny quote part of the reason we didn't include this is because he was up he was actually more near like cape canaveral when he wrote this but um he goes large horsefly three quarters of an inch long outrageous Swarmed upon the mule and bled her to death. Saved horses by rubbing them with tar and alligator oil mixed. This was on May 17th, 1844. He was up near the coast of uh, around Cape Canaveral when he wrote that. I really wanted to include that in the episode, but it just it didn't really fit. But that's just a great illustration of how difficult the environment that he was dealing with was and that he literally had mules being sucked dry by horseflies in the swamps of Florida. I think that's something um, we can all relate to. We've all been nearly bled to death by um, yeah, horseflies yeah. and mosquitoes down here. But it's something, you know, it's, it's, it's actually something that <laughs> yeah. our listeners have asked us about multiple times. Mm-hmm. And I honestly don't have, like, a very good answer. And it's, like, how did these people deal with mosquitoes i mean i know they they had you know they had mosquito nets and they would uh build fires and use certain you know mm-hmm. certain things in those fires long that sleeves. right they wore long sleeves they, but crazy. i mean just like i i think they're asking 
there is no like magical cure for it, right? They just kind of dealt with it, and and and, and the, the like. The insect population in Miami today is like way way lower, right? Not just because of urbanization, but also because of like all the damage that's been done to the environment um, in general. But yeah, like if, you know, if you ever like have been out in the middle of the Everglades in the summer, like you know, you breed you breed them in. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and like, how, like why? It's almost like why did anybody? Why did anybody stay here for yeah. that? Why did like, I? I still like, don't know. Even even with mosquito nets and long sleeves and all that, I don't know how they did it. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. It's but a I thought he goes. Yeah, this is like a man of science, you know, and he goes, outrageous. Outrageous. <laughs> this, this is outrageous that these insects are, like, literally killing my my pack animals. Um, next is just a li- funny little factoid. We didn't actually uh, have the bandwidth to look into this deeply, but this was mentioned in one or two of our sources, um, which was that when... Rockefeller and Flagler were first getting their oil business going and, you know, like trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, And they were looking for financing. The Brickles were living in In Ohio Ohio at the time, I believe. Yeah, the Brickles were in Ohio. Somehow, someway, I don't know how they knew each other at that time, but um, the Rockefellers and Flagler, uh, uh, Rockefeller and Flagler actually ended up getting a loan from William Brickle to help start one of their first iterations of their oil business. And I think the source that we read, I apologize that I don't remember what the source was, but uh, it said, like, he never got his money back. <laughs> right. Like, that that iteration, like, didn't pan out, and Brickle never got his money back. And, um, you know, these guys ended up going on to become some of the richest Americans ever, and Rockefeller, possibly the richest American ever. So when Flagler came down here, this wasn't actually his first time meeting the Brickles. Like, they had done business before. So that's something that I think would be very interesting to look into a little further. There's probably some other Miami historians that know a little more about that. Um, yeah, well, and this you know, gets... What their, what their relationship was like and stuff. And this gets to the larger question of the Brickles in general. Even as Nick and I, going through our sources and, and reading the history, there's there seems to be like a lack of the Brickles' presence in the history we're reading, especially when compared to some of these other major characters, right? Like Tuttle and Flagler. And there's actually a lot of exciting history being conducted right now on the Brickles' role and trying to kind of unearth that and bring that to light. Because the Brickles were really, I mean, and we we, we said as much in in the last episode, they were co-founders of Miami as well. They were just as integral to the the founding of the city, and particularly Mary Brickle, who was by all accounts like the mover and shaker when it came to these land deals that brought Flagler down. I I will add another interesting cutting room floor bit about Flagler, I'm sorry, about, (laughs) about the Brickles and Ephraim Sturdivant, who was Julia Tuttle's father, uh, if you guys recall, Ephraim Sturdivant came down with William Brickle way back before Julia Tuttle ever set foot down here, and they came down on the same boat from New York. And on that boat were supplies and timber 
sufficient to construct two houses. So they get down to Miami and they build, they build Brickell's house first. And by the time Sturdivant goes to, to you know, get his supplies and wood uh, for his house, he notices that there's way less than half. So apparently he couldn't build his house and he got ticked off that people were either, either Brickle built himself a larger house than he was supposed to or um, <laughs> there were some sticky fingers you know, running around grabbing the timber. But that apparently is, is at least one of the sources of the falling out that Sturdivant and uh, William Brickle had that led to Sturdivant then moving up to Miami Shores and um, linking up with um, our good friend William Gleason. Mm-hmm. Good old Gleason. Good old Gleason. Speaking of Gleason, I think we did a decent job of sort of illustrating that he had his sticky little fingers in everything. But there's so much of that stuff that, like, we couldn't fit it all in. Gleason could have um, had, like, seriously, like, a whole season. This guy yeah. <laughs> is, I mean, you know, <laughs> he was a shyster and all that, but he was easily the most entertaining character that I've come across so far in our research of Miami. I mean, the guy was a character. Yeah. Um, I was just reading, like, a Wikipedia page or something about, uh, like, Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall up in New York. And I was reading some of that stuff, and I'm like, I feel like Gleason was, like, taking notes from this guy and, like, totally just trying to, like... Without a doubt. Yeah, follow the same playbook down here, obviously on a much smaller scale. But we talked about um, House of Refuge number 5, which was sort of like the first long-term structure ever built on Miami Beach, which was a project of the... United States Life Saving Service, uh, which is a federal program. Gleason, as clerk of the court and uh, various other positions he held down here, besides being a state uh, state representative, basically took it upon himself to be the surveyor for selecting that site and overseeing the construction of House of Refuge Number Five. I didn't write down these numbers here, but he ended up like sending sending the U.S. government like a crazy bill. It was like three or four hundred dollars or something, which was at the time like a lot. And the and the government was like uh, classic Gleason. Yeah, he, he he like finagled his way into like you know trying to you know get paid for everything that was going on down here. Um, and that the construction of that house of refuge was shoddy at first and um they had to get the contractor to like come back and fix it up like a you know the the place was like falling apart almost as soon as it was built so they had to like come and redo it also on the note of houses of refuge there is one that is still standing if anybody wants to go visit it um it's called the gilbert's bar house of refuge it is up in broward or Palm Beach. Gilbert's Bar, House of Red, Hutchinson, and Stewart. Okay, yeah. Oh, oh, it's way up in Stewart. Um, but yeah, you can go. You can still go visit this. And this thing was built in, you know, in 1874, I believe. Yeah. Um, or perhaps earlier than that. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it's built in 1876. Was when it was built. So I just, I just thought that was cool because there was. 
this is basically all these buildings were identical. Um, so this one is identical to the one that uh, was the first one that was built, the first building on Miami Beach. Um, so you can go explore that. It's a big building. It's two two-story building. It was basically made to house shipwrecked survivors for um, you know a fairly extended period of time. So it had bunks, it had provisions and supplies, all this stuff. There's one still standing at Gilbert's Bar. Cool. What else do we got here? Oh, okay, this is my favorite one. Hamilton Distin. So we um, we talked. Yeah, I I was really sad that like we couldn't find a good place for Hamilton Distin in the regular episodes. We talked about the Industrial Revolution. We talked about steel. We talked about the Internal Improvement Fund of Florida and its relationship with all these ideas of draining the Everglades and opening up all this land for land developers. And we also talked about sort of like the emergence of the Florida citrus industry. All of these things were going on around the same time. And Hamilton Distin was right in the middle of all of this. So Hamilton Distin's father had founded the Distin Saw Company, which benefited from, you know, the arrival of cheap steel. They became like the premier manufacturer of saws in America, steel saws, and uh, Distin's father became like filthy rich. He was the saw tycoon. So Hamilton Distin inherited a ton of money and a huge company, and as Florida was sort of emerging as a destination for, for like backwoods tourism, rugged, you know, like escapism, Hamilton Distin came down here on vacation and learned about the opportunities to drain the interior of Florida. And if he was successful, uh, you know, if, if somebody was successful with that, they would be granted an enormous amount of land to develop. Long story short, Hamilton Distin ended up buying over a million acres of Florida land. Um, some people claim it's the largest land purchase by a single individual in world history. I think that's kind of difficult to verify. So I would sort of just consider that anecdotal, but suffice to say it was a huge land purchase and Hamilton Distin like poured massive resources into trying to drain the Everglades. He built a canal, I think, from Lake Okeechobee to the Caloosahatchee River, which in theory would have allowed the Kissimmee River Basin um, north of Lake Okeechobee to drain. It kind of worked. But what ended up happening, of course, is that nature is not that forgiving. And he was able to open up some of the land in central Florida, but the land around further downstream around the Caloosahatchee ended up getting like super flooded and like he super messed up um, like the ecology around there. Um, and it also like building those canals was like way more expensive than and like way harder than he had planned for um he sunk tons and tons of money into it and like 
wasn't able to actually like drain very much at all. And in the meantime, he had like this these huge land holdings and he was never going to make his money back on that unless he was able to develop them. So he also was heavily involved in promoting Florida and promoting Florida development. He was a major player in the emergence of um, many, many towns in central Florida, including like Sanford. Um, I'm sure he, you know, helped uh, Orlando emerge as sort of like the, the hub of the citrus economy in the 1870s. You know, even some of his land was even like around like the Naples area today, and he helped uh, put Naples on the map. And many of these other uh, uh, central Florida towns. And he also helped, his efforts helped attract farmers and helped sort of like kickstart the Florida orange uh, and citrus industry. Um, so Hamilton Distin is actually sort of like a major, major player in the history of Florida and Florida's development, and especially this sort of period after the Civil War where Florida emerged from its, like, centuries of, you know, trouble and strife and setbacks and sort of began to finally stabilize. Distin was on the forefront of that. But what's crazy is he had all of this land that he was so heavily invested in, and when the Great Freeze happened in... Uh, 1894 and 1895 he was still like way deep in debt you know that stuff had not panned out particularly because the draining of the Everglades uh, and the interior of Florida is like way harder than anybody had given it credit for after the freeze and like the collapse of the Florida economy uh, a few years later he uh, sadly took his own life so it was that bad but uh I, I would I would encourage readers to go just like read his Wikipedia page because um, Disson is a is a he's he's a very interesting character. We ended up taking him out because he, none of his land was here in Miami, but he's 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 you know he played he played a major role and he you know he I'm sure he would have been involved with Henry Plant and the development of the railroads, you know more on the in Central Florida and. Uh, the west coast of Florida, and so on and so forth. Cool. What's next? Tuttle was an event. Oh, that's just a little. Yeah, Tuttle. That's just a little one. So Tuttle. So the the Florida Coastline Canal and Transportation Company was the company that got all the land grants from the government on the east coast. He's that's the company that um, Flagler had to like go halves with because they had all his land, all the land he needed. Julia Tuttle, who's like trying so hard to get people to, to get somebody to like build a connection to Miami, you know, while she was over here trying to talk to Plant and Ingraham and Flagler and get them to build railroads. On the other side, she was like trying to get the canal to come down. She was like, just any of this stuff, like, please get a connection down here so people can come down here more easily and help develop this area. So Tuttle, we found out, we don't know a ton about this, but Tuttle was apparently a, an early investor in the canal companies. And it sounds like that's something she got into uh, like as soon as she moved down here. Um, uh, so I, that was an interesting little fact. Binding arbitration. We, um, Howard, Howard Kleinberg's, what's it called? Miami, the way we were. 
by Howard Kleinberg is an awesome book that you should go check out at the library um, that has a bunch of original documents, including the original contract signed by Julia Tuttle and Henry Flagler. And uh, Paul is an attorney. <laughs> I know attorneys. And uh, we read the whole contract. And it includes a binding arbitration agreement, which if you're a lawyer or a nerd... Yeah, Nick, Nick thought that was all. funny. I just thought it was, you know, good lawyering. <laughs> good, good lawyering. I don't know. I was just surprised that, like, bi binding arbitration was already a thing yeah. <laughs> way back in the 1890s. Yeah, so you have one here, Paul. You, I guess you kind of you covered this a little bit already. Yeah, yeah, the, the Brickles story, as, as I said earlier, they're, they're, this is something we actually haven't delved as deeply into. It, it, it's more really the story of how the history of these people, you know, came to be. So in lieu of going down the historiographical black hole of figuring that out, which, which can be very time intensive, we, it's, it's deep. Yeah, we haven't quite figured out the process of, you know, the Brickles place in Miami, his, in Miami's history and how that came to be. But, you know, apparently their, their role has been somewhat minimized for various reasons. So I think we would encourage our, our listeners to, dive into as many sources as they can. The Brickles are, to me, they're a fascinating family, right? I mean, first of all, they're the namesake for, like, probably the most recognizable neighborhood in Miami right now, at least certainly the most, uh, like, up-and-coming. Um, you know, Brickles, like, I, I hear it referred to now as, like, the little Manhattan of Miami. And their place in Miami's history is, you know, as we've said it's many times. It's the shiniest part of Miami for, for at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, shiniest. Okay, yeah. I mean, South Beach can be pretty shiny, but um, um, definitely with the steel and the and the glass and the and the you know panorama and and all the new buildings. Sure, yeah, definitely. It's got all the nice tall buildings. But anyways, yeah. So I we would just encourage people to to keep a an open mind when it comes to like Miami's origin story and and the Brickles part in that story and and not you know Flagler and, and Tuttle weren't the only two major players. So that's that's kind of that. Um, and Mary Brickle in particular, you know, by by all accounts, was was, yeah, was, was more of a player than, than William was, which, uh, I don't know, it's a cool fact. Yeah, she's, I mean, in, um, in, many, in many ways, she's the other, like, mother of Miami, right? I mean, there's... there's right, exactly. Um, there's, exactly. there's Tuttle, and, and there's, there's also Mary Brickle. Okay, so I think we've got one more left, and that's that, um, that. This is just a little factoid. The county seat had been moved to Miami, where the where it opens into the Bay Biscayne, or whatever that quote was. The county seat was at Miami, but sometime shortly before Flagler came down, the county seat was actually moved up to Juno, near Jupiter. So, like, at the 18, north end of... 1888, was moved up to Juneau Beach. Yeah, which is just kind of bizarre that, like, the, the, the seat of Dade County was way up at the north end of the county for a while. Very uh, sparsely populated area, but also an area that was sort of closer to, I guess, the quote-unquote, like, mainland of America um, actually had... Uh, seems to have had sort of, like, a stronger connection to you know like the rest of America up there just because they were closer and it was a little easier to get there overland 
And I think, I don't know exactly why the county seat was moved to Juneau, but I read something along the lines of, uh, like, Gleason's shenanigans and various other, like, um, you know, sh shenanigans in county government uh, that were being made by people in power down near Miami was, like, really upsetting everybody further north in the county. And remember, this this was a time when Dade County stretched all the way to the north end of what's today Palm Beach County. So there was, like, a referendum or something, and they were like, nope, you guys are not going to run this county anymore, and, uh, and they moved the county seat up there. And what we're going to see if we are able to find a place to, to mention it in upcoming episodes is that when Miami was founded, it was not the county seat, and the county seat was moved back down here a few years later after Miami sort of, like, took off and became a, became a force to be reckoned with. Um, so I just, I thought that was, I was like, what, Juno? Like, it's like, where's, where's Juno? Uh, sorry, sorry if you're from Juno. Uh, so uh, I that's think it. That's that, it for the cutting room floor. Yeah, I, th I think that does it for the cutting room floor. And I think before we head out, we do want to yeah, take a moment and give a few shout outs and recommendations to our listeners. Mm -hmm. We often get asked for, for sources to read up on Miami's history and we find ourselves kind of circulating the same few names. So we figured we'd shout them out and, and, and they've been so helpful and invaluable in, in helping us, you know, create these first two seasons. And I think, uh, like, it's also important to say, like, you know, we, we, we started this project as amateurs and everything we've learned has been with the help of, the historians of Miami who have come before us and have done incredible work. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't have been able to do this podcast without, you know, the, the incredible work that's been done by those that came before. So, yeah, we, we want to just acknowledge and, 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 you know, give our thanks to, to that, to them and their work as well. So, um, <clears throat> sort of our, uh, our like our guide through this process has been the official Miami history book, Ma Miami the Magic City, by Arvermore Parks. Um, Arvermore Parks is a giant in the Miami history circles, so like she's she's the first one we want to we want to acknowledge and and thank. There's several other like really awesome authors who helped us a lot during the season. Thelma Peters wrote. Two great books. She wrote uh, she wrote Biscayne Country, and I think the other one was called Lemon City, which helped us a lot uh, learning about the pioneer times in the late 1800s. Um, Marvin Dunn wrote uh, Black Miami in the 20th Century, um, an amazing resource. I believe Marvin Dunn is a professor at FIU and somewhat of a leader of the black community. Yeah, and, um, and Marvin Dunn, he also has a documentary on Amazon Prime that's uh, based on his book, um, which you guys can watch. It's called The Black Miami, and I believe it was available for free. I don't know if that was kind of a, a limited time thing or, or if it's still available, but you might want to check that out. Yeah. 
there's several other books I mentioned. Um, uh, Miami, the, sorry, I'm facing away from the mic. I mentioned Miami the Way We Were by Howard Kleinberg. Uh, Yesterday's Miami by Nixon Smiley. There's many, many more. You can you can find these at your local library. Also, not, not the Tequesta. Go ahead, go ahead. That's what I was, <laughs> I was you you are oh, on the way. Okay, then. the Tequesta is um, sort of like the official sort of like academic journal for South Florida history, and y they have the, uh, the Tequesta has been publishing I think since the '40s, and you can go find every article on online. I think those articles are housed on the FIU website these days. But basically, if you Google like Tequesta Miami history, you'll you'll find links to all kinds of crazy articles, and we 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 learned a ton from from those articles. There's also several other Miami history podcasts out there that we want to acknowledge. Uh, um, the first one is Biscayne Tales by our friends Carlos Rico and Mark Guzman, um, Guz, Guz, Guzman, which I think helped inspire us to, uh, to start this project. Um, I learned a lot of crazy stuff about Arch Creek and the Fulford Speedway, the fastest speedway in America when it was built. It was built down here. So they only, uh, there, there's a handful of episodes of the Biscayne Tales out there for you to peruse. And then, of course, there is the Miami History Podcast by uh, Casey Paquette and Paul George. And these guys are a force to be reckoned with. Paul George, in particular, is sort of Miami's go-to historian these days. He, um, I believe he, he is the historian, he's the resident historian at the History Museum uh, History Miami. He's he does uh, at least before. I don't I don't know if he's still doing the weekly tours, but um, he was doing weekly free walking tours of Little Havana, and is just an incredible tour guide. We we went on a tour up the Miami River. We got on a boat and sailed up the Miami River with Paul George, and um, he's an encyclopedia. He he any anything you want to know. Um, you can ask Paul George, and he's very friendly and approachable. Um, and he and Casey Paquette do the Miami History Podcast, which is, as opposed to our format, which is sort of like the serial chronological format, um, they pick little themes from various points in Miami's history. Um, so, you know, maybe it's the history of the Miami Hurricanes, or, um, you know, maybe it's the history of this particular neighborhood or, or that particular street. And then they'll just talk about it for a few minutes, and it's a great resource if you just want to sort of consume Miami history in that format. And Casey Paquette as well, I believe he also runs the Miami History blog, which is miami-history.com, which has also been a great resource for us. And then last but not least, again, I want to shout out to History Miami Museum and the Miami and the History Miami Museum archives, the research center there. We ventured out into the field this season. We went to the archives. We were able to find several amazing maps there, some of those maps of the coastal surveys, as well as the, the map of uh, Abner Knowlton's original plat of the city of Miami. They were very, very helpful. 
And of course, the museum is an amazing resource. They have an entire tour there that goes through the entire history. And so you can go, you know, go walk through and, and experience the whole thing. And they do exhibits and they do events. Um, and that's it. Well, Nick said last but not least, the, the museum, but that's because he doesn't appreciate you guys. So last no. but not least, <laughs> we'd like to thank our listeners. Our uh, listeners. We, we've gotten such great feedback this season on our Instagram, on our website. Some people have reached out by email. And really, I mean, it really makes it all worthwhile when we hear from people that Seriously. that they've either, you know, people that have been here since the 50s or people that have just moved in from another city and they're sharing the same experience, which is like learning about this city, which they've either known their whole lives or lived in their whole lives, but never really known its history, or they just got here and are trying to figure out what makes this city tick. Yeah. Yeah. And so we love hearing from our listeners. We love the fact that that you guys are enjoying it. And um, at the end of the day, that's, that's what really makes it all worthwhile. Uh, so please keep listening. Yeah. Keep letting us know how you feel. And um, guys, guys, I can't, I can't stress that enough. This is, we put a lot of effort into this and there's like those times when you're deep in the trenches of, you know, of all the production of this and, you know, you question whether it's worth it, you know, whether it's actually going to have, the benefits for people that you know that you're hoping to deliver and when when i read your comments it makes it all worthwhile for me and i know paul feels the same way and it you know it gives it gives me the strength to carry on it it really does this is this is something that we're so passionate about and knowing that that you guys are getting out of it what we were hoping you would it just makes it all worthwhile so thank you so much for your comments and your feedback please keep it coming you know good or bad you know whatever you have to say about the work we're doing we want to know we just we just want to keep doing a better and better job but yeah thank you so much for for listening and you know, for your, for your support and, and so on. And, and with that, we will be signing off on season two. We will be diligently researching and producing season three. So please be on the lookout, follow us on Instagram, all that good stuff. We'll let you guys know, you know, as, as the off season progresses, when, when we think we'll be able to release season three, but please just bear with us. This is a very time-consuming, painstaking process. So yeah. um, you might not hear uh, a new season for, for a few months, but rest assured, they're coming. So with yep. that, please uh, stay safe out there, and we'll see yeah. you soon. So long, folks.